Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. So as you can see, today is the first Sunday of the month. We're going to have communion at the end of the service, so that's open to anyone who's a Christian. Um, just invite everyone to come forward and receive those elements, and then I'll lead everyone in a prayer together. It's a great time to remember the Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ, how he has come to us, how he makes all things new, how we've been born again by his grace and the power of the gospel, and what an awesome God we serve. So happy new year to you all. And it's a blessing to, to uh, yeah, each day the Lord makes is something to rejoice in. So praise God for him and all he's done for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending your son to be our savior and for giving us a new day, a new year, where we can serve you and minister to you and just proclaim your goodness daily through our lives. And Thank you that you are the faithful God. You are the one who hears and answers prayers and the one who draws us near to yourself by your grace and the one who's come to us. How blessed we are, Lord, to know you and to know we are known by you that the things we're going through and the, the troubles that we may face or the difficulties, you, you are well aware of all of them and how you will use them for your glory. And so we thank you, Lord, that uh, you're a healer, that there's hope in you, that there is rest in Jesus, that we can enter into today through faith. And so, Lord, we proclaim you and bless your holy name in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 31, starting in verse 17, is where we begin today. Thinking about God, he, he is comforting and also terrifying at the same time. I know in Psalm 139, David, he praised God for being omniscient, being omnipresent. He's like, he knows everything. He, he's everywhere. You can't hide from him. And why would you hide from um, your ever-present help in time of trouble? Like, you don't want to hide from that one. You, you want to run to that one. But Jonah, he's another case, right? He tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. God said, go to Nineveh and cry out against that great city. And he didn't want to. And so he tried to hide from God. And God sent this storm that um, endangered the lives of everyone aboard the ship. They were terrified. Think about a, a, the presence of a policeman, you know, an armed peace servant, where you're like, when, you, when they're coming in response to your call as an innocent person, and they're there to protect you and to help you, it's like a relief, like, oh, good. The lawman is here. The one who can help me is here. But if you're the one who's committed the crime, it's a different story. And those who are not intimidated by cops or their gun could be quite terrified by their dog that is very persistent and well-trained to latch on and not let go until the command is given. So it's like, as children of God, we're comforted that he is our father, that he is our protector and provider. And he provides for all of our needs with our good in mind. He, has, he knows what he's doing, and we can trust him. And God's witness to what we cannot see or know, the thoughts and motives of the heart. So in Genesis 31, Jacob has had a confidential discussion with his wives about leaving Laban, their father, and going to Canaan um, according to God's command. So God had spoken to him in a dream and said, return back to your father's house. And so he pulled his wives aside, spoke with them, and they miraculously agreed. They had been feuding and not getting along with each other at all, but they agreed, like, yep, whatever God has said to you, do. And so that's where we come to today at Genesis 31, 17. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, 
And he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Paddan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed towards the mountains of Gilead. So Jacob gathers all of his family, his livestock, his children, his possessions that he had gained over those 20 years, and he sets out for that trip home to his father's house in Canaan. He placed his wives and sons and his daughter on the camels. They were called ships of the desert, beasts well-suited for that long journey. I read that camels can travel 50 Ks a day um, with a load much faster than other beasts of Bernard. They can go a week or more without water and end in those grueling desert conditions. In fact, I read that they can go six to seven months without water during winter, and they'll lose about half of their body weight during that time. So they can go a long time without water, even trekking through the desert. Jacob wanted to obey God. He also wanted to avoid confrontation with Laban. He was afraid of Laban his father-in-law, and when Laban left to go shear his sheep, it was a perfect opportunity for him to flee, to get away without having to confront him. Unknown to Jacob, we read that Rachel had pinched the household idols, Laban's gods. And we're not told why she did that. And I think, well, why did she? Well, we know that Laban did offer sacrifices to these. He divined by them. He, he looked to them for protection and provision and insight, like what should I do? And or believe that they were like his good luck charms. And so maybe she took them because she didn't want him inquiring of them. Maybe she just wanted them. And some have said that the right of the inheritance was tied to these images. And so these images would be passed from father down the line and you would have control then over the inheritance. So maybe that was a reason. But whatever the reason, Jacob with a clear conscience, he left Pat and Aram heading home, according to God's word, he did not feel any obligation to tell Laban anything. They crossed the river, believed to be the Euphrates, and headed towards the mountains of Gilead. Verse 23, and Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. Three days after Jacob leaves, Laban hears about it. Someone had come and told him, hey, Jacob's left. He's taken what? He's taken everything. Like all the flocks, the herds, his wife, kids, they're all gone. And he's like, what? And he gathers his men together and pursues him. For seven days, he traveled until he caught up to him in the mountains of Gilead. That's 160 Ks northeast of Beersheba, where he was heading. And I'm sure that the shock of him leaving began to make him quite angry and furious about the way that he left. Because we know that Jacob had observed the, the countenance of Laban was not favorable towards him as before. So there's already some bitterness. There was some anger because he saw Jacob as profiting from him, as enriching himself from, at his expense. 
And the way he left, it fueled flames of resentment and bitterness. And I'm sure as he's moving, people are talking to him. And they're poking the bear. They're saying, like, I cannot believe he did that. And Laban's like, I, I know, right? I'm, I'm his father-in-law. He works for me. I tell him what to do. And he's getting really upset about this. And he's thinking about what he's going to do to Jacob when he catches up to him. This amazing thing happens. Laban had previously had these household idols to which he sacrificed to those articles that he looked to for help. But now God the almighty living God comes to him in a dream and speaks to him. And he says, he warned him not to even say anything good or bad to him. It's like God's watching and Laban knows it. God was a witness not only to his conversations with his men, but the intent in his heart. God saw it and called him out on it. This passage and others, like in the book of Job, it demonstrates that only God knows how many times he has divinely intervened to protect us and to prevent harm coming to us. Where there was intended harm, but God saw in his grace to turn it aside, to say, be careful what you do, Laban. Don't even speak to him badly. And the skeptic will point to times where a bad thing happens and use it as a damning accusation against God or that he doesn't really have the power to save. But that's like saying a car is worthless because it cannot cure cancer. We can only objectively say something is good or bad because God is good and he has spoken to us the truth of what good and bad is. Because the things that are bad are not like God. He sets that standard of perfection and righteousness and goodness. And God also has this ability to redeem everything that's even bad for good, like betrayal, torture, lies, murder. We see that with Jesus, right? Jesus endured all those things and God redeemed them so that we could be saved, that we could be delivered. The Bible declares that God is the only being that is truly good and his will is always to save, to protect, to help. And it's folly to malign God because there are people who choose to do wickedly and disobey him. God gives that freedom. Genesis 31, 26. They finally meet. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with a sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. Laban confronts Jacob to his face about stealing away taking his daughters and grandchildren away, I think he was probably more concerned about those flocks he had with him, the flocks and herds. But um, it's likely that if Jacob had spoken to Laban about leading, would Laban have been happy about that arrangement? No way. He would not have been sending him away with timbrel and harp at a big party. Like many times before, he would have done anything to keep him there. He was the brains, the brawn, and the blessing of his business. He's not going to let him go. But Laban plays the victim, right? He paints himself as the, just the doting grandfather. 
the innocent party who's been wronged because his son won't even talk to him. And he says, I should have had that opportunity that you deprived me of. That was foolish of you. And then he gives in, intent into his pursuit. So we get a little insight into why he pursued him so quickly. He says, it is in my power to do you harm. The idea is he had in plan to do something to him. But the God of Isaac spoke to him. He said, don't even speak to him, good or bad. And he's foiled. It's kind of like you've seen those videos where someone's like, they're in a shop and they're looking around and they take something and they like put it into their pants or in their shirt. And as they're doing it, they just look over and they, oh, a security camera. I'm just going to put this back and act like nothing happened and then quickly get out to avoid arrest. That's exactly what Laban was doing. He had these plans. He's like, I'm going to get him, man. I'm going to get him. And then God spoke to him. He's like, oh, right. Well, better listen to him because he feared God. He had already traveled six days in hot pursuit. He was going to air his grievances. And he wasn't finished. He continued in verse 30. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? And Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. For I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent, entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but he did not find the household idols. Jacob's departure, it coincided with his idols suddenly going missing. And maybe someone in the house had said they were taken. He had many servants, he had people around, many eyes. And so he assumed that they had been taken by Jacob. And Laban said, it's one thing for you to leave, you know, to your father's house. That I can accept. But this is a low blow. Taking my idols, taking the household gods, that is, that is out of line. He believed they were his protection, his provision. And, and Jacob says, well, I left because I was afraid of you, that you were going to take your daughters by force and thus force me to stay. Like he wasn't going to be agreeable to his plan. And based on their history, it's very reasonable to be thinking this. Can you imagine working for seven years and you had a, you had a, a, you had a contract? Like, you thought you, were, you, you both said you're working for Australian dollars, and then at the seven-year mark when you're paid out, you get monopoly money. Like, like yeah, and you're going to work a s seven more years for what you really want, what you really work for. Because he worked for, Le for Rachel for seven years, and he was tricked into getting... Leah, and then he worked another seven for Rachel. So he changed up the deal on him. So could you trust Laban at all? No, he had changed his wages over and over. And I wouldn't put anything past somebody who was so sleazy, who would conceive of such a selfish plan at the expense of his own flesh and blood and his future son-in-law to create so much trauma within the house. I mean, he'd do anything if he could earn a buck. So Jacob didn't trust him. He was afraid of him. And Jacob's very confident, is he? isn't he? He's like, well, whoever you find those idols with, give them the death penalty. 
Don't let him live. Jacob's righteousness was visible all around them because remember he had said, any animal that's in my flock or herd that is not streaked, speckled, or spotted, if it's, if it's all one color, it's a theft and, and I'm guilty. And he's got thousands of animals, all streaked, speckled, and spotted. And I'm sure they walked through and they saw, okay, none of Laban's animals are here. And then Laban goes into the tents and he starts rifling through Jacob's tent, Leah's tent, Rachel's tent, Bilhah, Zilpah's tent. And she had taken the household aisles and she was sitting on them. She's just perched up there. Oh my Lord, don't worry about me. I'm, I'm menstruating at this time. I cannot rise before you. And that was a good enough reason. He didn't even question it. And she's sitting on the images. Under Mosaic law, given hundreds of years later in Leviticus 15, the saddle, the images, the camel, everything that she was sitting on was ceremonially unclean. And so you wouldn't want to touch those things lest you be rendered unclean. And it's ironic, Laban's looking for his gods. He's looking for his idols. He can't find them. They're right there. And they can't even make their presence known to him as they're being sat on. It's quite ironic. It's like, if that image can't even declare its presence, it can't even say, help, I'm being sat upon. <laughs> they can't protect themselves from theft, can't protect themselves from uncleanness. They can't protect or help you either, Laban, or those who trust in them. They can't help you. They can't protect you. But in contrast, how awesome is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the living God who cannot be stolen, he can't be tricked, he can't be taken, the one who speaks in dreams, the one who brings to light the intent that's hidden in darkness. And I think after 10 days, Jacob has home in his sights. He's like, We're, we got away. And maybe he's feeling quite confident. But then God knows what's happening and he meets Laban in a dream and speaks to him, protecting him. And, and without the intervention of God, he is at the mercy of a wicked and greedy Laban. Those images couldn't protect Jacob or Rachel, but God who speaks, who sees, who knows all things, he protects his people. He can't be bought, sold, stolen, or sat upon. Genesis 31, 36. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they may judge between us both. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day the drought consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock and you have changed my wages 10 times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Hmm. So Laban does his thorough search, and Jacob 
explodes. He's had 20 years of working for Laban. He is speaking his mind now. It's like pent-up frustration, and he rebukes Laban, who hunted him down and accused him of doing wrong. And he says, what's my sin? Where are the things that you say I've taken? Show us. Show us what you took. Show, show everyone what I took. Look around. Where is it? After you chased me down. And he was offended by that accusation of theft. He reminds him of his honesty in business for 20 years. He's saying, I didn't eat of the flock. It was common to eat of the males because you don't need as many males as females. Females were the most valuable because they would bear young. So he's like, I did not even eat of the rams. I didn't take them for myself. Nobody would have known, but I was honest and it was hot. I was thirsty and I'm not drinking the milk. I was freezing and I'm not taking the wool for myself because that's your wool, that's your milk. I saved it for, it's yours. I treated it with respect. I didn't steal anything. I paid from it for my own pocket and my own wages if something was stolen or lost because you required it of me. He was a tough guy to work for. Many a sleepless night he spent caring for his uncle's flocks looking at them as more important than his own health and well-being. And now Laban is coming and accusing him of stealing from him when the evidence of his righteousness is everywhere for people to see. Not one white lamb, ram, ewe, or goat among them. Not one. I bet they made a very thorough search. Didn't find anything. And he says, unless God had been with me, for those 20 years, I would have been sent out empty-handed. Jacob's not crediting his hard work or his savvy, but the divine providence of the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, for everything that he had. And it's like, Jacob didn't say, well, whew, well, I'm glad that God talked to you last night because, as you can see, I can't really defend myself. And not at all. He was grateful that God had been with him every day for 20 years. And he lived that way. He was sustained in doing what was right in the eyes of God because God was with him and helped him and protected him. Through the drought, through the frost, God was with him and God was for him. And this is really the triumph of faith that comes through trials like gold refined seven times. When no one but you knows how you've been tricked or lied to or robbed or wronged, God knows. God is with you and for you. He will protect and help you. He intervenes for our good. It's not God that forgets us. It's we who forget him. And knowing that God's with us, it provides us courage and strength even when there's no vindication. So Jacob has this moment, right, where he's vindicated, where his stuff's been looked through. There's no lambs paraded before everyone that he had stolen. Like, they had nothing on him. But we see this in the life of David, that even before that moment comes, when that moment may never come, he took strength in God. Turning your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. So David and his men, they were staying in a town called Ziklag of the Philistines because they were, he was afraid about King Saul. And he and his men were living there for a season. And they come back and they find the town empty. And no bodies because everyone had been kidnapped 
Their wives, their children, their animals, their possessions were all gone, and the city burnt with fire. So everyone was very upset. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The passage says that they cried until they could cry no more. And when they were done crying, they looked at David and they said, he should die for this. Let's stone him. And David was distressed. He had lost as much as everybody else. He was without his wives. But instead of worrying or justifying himself or arguing or fighting with his naysayers, it says he strengthened himself in the Lord. He didn't rub his lucky rabbit's foot or consult with the idols or offer incense or sacrifice to some Philistine god. 1 Samuel 30 verse 7, it says, Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. David strengthened himself in the Lord by seeking God. And he was strengthened. And he asked a question that very few of us would think to ask. Should I go after them? We're like, well, duh, of course we're going to go after them. But he says, should I go after them? That's faith, isn't it? He didn't just assume he's supposed to go after them. He was waiting on God to speak to him. And God said, go, pursue, and you will without fail recover all. This gave him courage. And in through seeking the Lord and walking in obedience to him, he was strengthened, even though he was hurting, though he was concerned about what was happening, that God was with him and God would help him. And we need this, we need this understanding as well, that God's with us, God will help us. And Jacob was demonstrating this faith for 20 years. God's with me every day in the drought in the, in the frost, God's with me. And that's the only reason why I have a single sheep or my wife with me is because of God, God being with me. There he was and there God was. Back to Genesis 31, 43. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters and these children are my children and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? Now therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Gilead, also Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. After Jacob's uh, statement to Laban, he's quite a different person. He's a bit humbled here. Um, he's been undermined because of his accusation without any evidence. And he looks upon the mass of the humanity, like all these kids and his daughters and 
all these flocks, and he's saying, these are all mine. How could I do them any harm? How could I harm them when they came from me? And he says, let's make a covenant. Let's make an oath, a solemn agreement. And Jacob took a stone, and he set it up, a memorial before their, of their promise to God, and Laban calls it witness pile in Aramaic, and Jacob called it by the Hebrew word. It was later called mitzpah, which means watchtower. Really more a warning against doing wrong than like we should be nice to each other. It's more like, well, God will see if we do what's wrong toward each other. Like God is the witness, right? The stones obviously couldn't see anything, but God was a witness of the things they said, the promises made before him who sees and knows all. Notice that Jacob doesn't do any talking. He had no, no desire or really any plan to make a deal with Laban, believing that he would keep his word at all. But Jacob agreed to it. He would keep his word as he had already. And um, the Lord would keep watch before, be, of both of them, that if Jacob afflicted his wives or took wives besides them, God would see it. And really, that's the way David, uh, Jacob had been living for 20 years, the fear of God who was with him. But Laban, it's like his control was gone. He wasn't able to control, he didn't hold any of the power anymore like he once did, where he could wield a bit of control over him. That was gone, and he imagined Jacob to be like him, willing to use people as pawns. We see this principle in Romans 2.1 that we see in Laban. It says, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Laban's not a man of his word. So what does he do? He makes Jacob promise with an oath that he is going to not afflict his family. Uh, Laban intended to do Jacob harm. And so he says, Jacob, promise that you're not going to do any harm to my family or to my flock, to my children. It's like the people who are really afraid of being gossiped about, guess what? They tend to gossip. That's why they're concerned about it. They're aware of it because it's what they do. Other people wouldn't even think of it. So this, this principle is on display that the things we suspect or condemn in others, it's because we do the same thing. Genesis 31, 51. Then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap, here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Don't you love how Jacob sets up the pillar and what does Laban say? Here is the pillar I have set up. Just like he took credit for the wives and the, the kids and the flocks and like, this is all mine. <laughs> My pillar that I set up. This heap. <laughs> when it was everyone else, I gathered up the stones. But this pile was a divider. It was a boundary. It's like, I'm not going to cross this to do harm to you. You're not going to cross this boundary to do harm to me. That was fine by Jacob. He never set foot in Laban's country again. And Laban invokes the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father to judge between them. And Jacob swears to the God of his fathers, the fear of Isaac, that he's not going to cross that boundary to do harm. It's like he had 20 years of opportunity to sabotage the business 
but he was honest and trustworthy. He worked faithfully for a dishonest boss. And then Jacob, after offering that sacrifice, he called his brethren to eat bread. And this is really significant because by breaking bread together, it was a sign of peace and friendship. And it was Jacob offering the bread. It was him saying, let's become one together. Let us join together and affirm this alliance that we've made not to do harm to one another. It says, after eating bread, they stayed all night on the mountain. And I wouldn't be surprised if they observed that boundary. Laban's on one side, Jacob's on the other. They're not going to cross that boundary. And early in the morning, they, Laban arose, he kissed his sons and daughters, blessed them, and he departs, returned to his place, empty-handed, the way that he would have sent Jacob away had God not intervened, had God not been with him. It's amazing that Laban pursued with the intent to do harm, and yet it ended with him leaving with a peace treaty, that there was now peace where there had been bitterness and anger towards one another. Jacob had his family, his flocks, and his God, and Laban didn't have his gods and this covenant that they made before the Lord to avoid har harming one another, it pales in comparison to the new covenant that Jesus has made with us, right? It's like we have this blockage, this boundary of sin, and God has not, he's like, he has come, it's like he breached the gap between heaven and earth from God and man, and he crossed that, not just to say, I'm not gonna do you harm, but to give us eternal life, to forgive us of sin, to give us a hope of eternity in his presence with ever, forever. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, I'd just like to read this passage, Matthew 26, 26 through 28. So on the night Jesus was betrayed during Passover, he established a new covenant that trumped the covenant of law. So the Passover was remembering how God delivered the children of Israel, those who had the blood of the sacrifice on the lintel and doorposts, who ate of the Passover meal. The presence of God passed over and preserved their lives, whereas those of the Egyptians were destroyed. And so there's this, it's focused on the salvation of God's people. Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus, the bread of life, the living bread from heaven, he ate bread together with his disciples. He gave thanks and he says, eat of this bread. It represents my body. Drink of this cup. It symbolizes the new covenant in my blood. My blood that would be shed for you, for their salvation. And this eating of the bread, and I mean, we eat and drink because our bodies have physical needs. But this was addressing more than a physical need. This was dealing with a spiritual need for forgiveness and atonement and to provide spiritual life forever. Salvation. One thing that came out in one of our family Bible readings recently was how the law of Moses, it presented a pattern of priests eating for what atoned for the sin. And when they ate of it, it would consecrate and sanctify them. 
Uh, If you want to turn there, Exodus 29, starting in verse 32. So what Jesus was doing in giving his disciples that bread and of the cup to drink, it hearkened back to something they would have been familiar with under the law. Exodus 29, 32. Then Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. Jesus did is so amazing in that he has elevated, he elevated his disciples to that place. He brought them in to a covenant that they were an outsider from before, right? These were not these disciples that Jesus was speaking to, they were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were not priests. And yet, they were eating of the very thing that would atone for them. The symbols that they consumed was them receiving Jesus. And they would go on by his grace to be atoned for, by his body broken for them, his blood shed for them. And so it's like, this made them whole, the priests, it it consecrated them to serve God. And it's like, as children of God, having been born again through faith in Jesus, now we are on the inside of the kingdom of God. We have peace with God through Jesus, that we can serve him and one another by his grace. We're no longer outsiders, even though Gentile, like not even part of the, the commonwealth of Israel, but God has extended grace to everyone that we could be forgiven, made holy and righteous. And so having been made one through faith in Jesus, we rejoice and proclaim his death till he comes. We remember our Savior. We eat and drink before the Lord as our witness. When we eat of that bread and drink of that cup, we proclaim his death till he comes. He is alive. Jesus is returning. And we can be witnesses to bring him glory. And it's amazing that Jesus suffered so we could be healed. He came from heaven to earth to save us so we can live with him forever. I'd like to invite the worship team forward. Uh, They will lead us in a song, and during that song, please feel free to come up and take of the bread and cup, and I'll lead us in a prayer so we can receive together. But how awesome it is to be invited and awesome to be accepted Awesome to be loved by the God who created us. Instead of saying, I'm not going to do you harm, he has done any good in our lives. It's because of him, because he's been with you, because he's helped you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your grace that you have uh, invited us to come to you and to receive you through faith. That because of what Jesus did for us in this new covenant that was established by his shed blood, we can have forgiveness of sins. We can have a new life. We can be born again and live forever with you. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your grace and your goodness and the power of the gospel to transform our lives. And thank you that you are a God who is with us, not a God that can be stolen or silenced, not a God that can be lost or sat upon, but a God who speaks, a God who is greatly to be feared because you are awesome and holy and that you love us, that you are good.
So, Lord, we praise and thank you for all that you've done and ask that you would open our eyes to see how good you are. You would give us great boldness to proclaim how good you are and we would live like Jacob as people of faith, people of integrity, those who walk honestly and righteously before our God because you are holy and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.